Aussie MHR podcast. I'm Andy. And I'm Gemma. And we have made it to our final episode of this series, where we've been looking at the world of data science and analytics in business. And we are once again joined by Neil Martin, who is an expert and pioneer in the field. And in our last episode, we talked about what's happening today in business in relation to data and the growing importance of becoming data-driven. So if you did miss that episode or the first episode of this series, please do go and have a listen because they were really interesting conversations. Absolutely. And we'll be continuing that conversation in today's episode as we'll be looking at lessons we can learn from F1's digital transformation, which began back in the 90s, as well as asking Neil some questions about his experiences of working in Formula One. So... Welcome back, Neil. Thanks for joining us for part three. Thank you very much. We're excited to finally have this done. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> pleasure <laughs> and a joy. It's a pleasure for you to have us back. So let's get into it. We've talked a lot about where you've got to where you have got to and the impact that's made in the particular industries. And I think we've been talking a bit now about what businesses can do to reflect on that and how they can start making better business-driven uh, data-driven decisions. I suppose what we want to talk about next is, well, what can we learn about or what's coming into the world that businesses can be aware mm. of? Um, you were talking, obviously, about time in 1994 or 2003. Now, these seem like very long time ago. Um, no offence. No, yeah, <laughs> don't want to rub that in. Um, but um, there was no doubt, um, as you said before, uh, Formula One were doing things in significantly uh, earlier period than other businesses were willing to adopt these changes. What do you think other corporations can learn from what Formula One have done in terms of uh, dealing with risk or uncertainty with data? I, I think when you come down to the risk and uncertainty and measuring that, um, you're pretty far down your digital transformation journey anyway. Um, but what you can learn from it is every business that I've come across has a huge intangible problem. They go, oh, it's too difficult. We'll just keep doing it the way we do now because it kind of works. But bad luck happens. Events you don't plan for happen. And you can either sit there and ignore them generally until the bad luck actually does happen and then you're in some form of instability because you're trying to, in a very short period of time, trying to resolve that problem. Or you can go, actually, I know what the likely potential bad things that can happen are. What will we do in those scenarios? Let's embrace the risk. Let's see if it's probable that event is going to happen or are we just worried about it because if it does happen, it's really bad. Mm. So what you need to do is identify the risk points to your business and instead of shying away from them, lean into the risk, embrace the risk, try and get one or two steps more understanding than you've got today because when you do that, you're going to be in a better position. And if we're thinking of a bad scenario now, we're nice and calm, we're thinking about it, we've got plenty of time because that event actually hasn't happened. So the more you push into the planning phase, the more you understand these events, the better position you're going to be in to A, understand if it's likely to happen, and B, if it does happen, you've pre-prepared your responses. So if you're thinking flying airplanes, for example, they've got like a playbook. If this happens and that happens, what, mm. what is the process to follow? They're not working on the fly. People have spent hours, hours, that's insulting, years <laughs> getting the right process for that scenario for the optimal outcome. 
And what you need to do is push everything into preparation where you can to actually make sure when you're in that position, you have the best response. Now, just following up on that, the other thing that I always get pushed at, at, back at me when I tell people to plan is they go, well, I'm so busy in the now, I don't have enough time now, how can I possibly plan? Well, true, but if, you're li if everything is a P1 item such that you do not have any capacity to do anything else, either you gain some capacity to plan for the future, even for where your business is going, or at some point you will trip on the pavement and fall flat on your face. Those are your two outcomes. You are not going to hit a home run every single time and live in the now, because if you're living in the now, you are not planning strategically the direction of your company. Definitely. And I think for lots of companies, it will probably be quite um, a familiar thing to talking about um, in the when we're thinking about kind of business continuity plans like, oh, our servers are down, our networks are down, we need to know how we're going to recover in a disaster. So that like the really, really significant things companies probably are already aware of and probably already have a plan to do something with. But I guess this is taking it to that next level and actually looking at, you know, not the devastating, but the actual just what could go wrong business wise. What could go wrong or opportunities in the market? If you've mm. got your head down and your blinkers on, and you're only going for one market, another market might open up where your IP is completely applicable to that, but you've missed it because you are just mm. servicing one. And it's interesting you mention IT because that whole arena, speaking across the board, they tend to have great plans for recovery, backups, data recovery yeah. and all of that. But it's the softer side, mm. the business strategic plans you know, everyone cut and paste, adds on 10% and says yeah. that's the plan for next year. Exactly. And it's just like, that's not a plan, that's just a hope. Yeah. And it's like when there's budgetary restrictions, you know, a naive company might just say, we'll take 5% off everyone's budget. But if you model that area, you might actually say, we take 10% off certain departments and actually increase the mm. budget on other departments because that will give the optimal outcome. But if you're doing, shall we say, level one modeling, you might just do a broad stroke across the whole company and treat everyone the same. But it's not about treating everyone the same. It's mm. about getting the optimal outcome. So if it means increasing the budget for one whilst heavily going down on other departments, if you are truly aligned and focused on the objective function, you will accept that and not take it personally. What other questions have you got in your bank there, Gemma, before we wrap up for this session i think we've covered all of my questions well firstly we were going to ask neil one question um which we wanted on record who was your favorite formula one driver blimey i've worked with a few in my time um there's a lot of drivers in a lot of different racing series who i've come across and each have their own attributes so if we go back far enough mika hakkinen was a phenomenal driver in terms of speed uh david coulthard he wasn't quite as quick as mika but he's just a legend all-round guy um, fernando alonso when he feels loved in a team he's like the terminator with a steering wheel i mean he just never gives up but if he doesn't feel loved his pace is somewhat slower than if he does feel mm. in an encapsulated loving environment i mean i've i've worked with so many he, 
see, singling one out would be uh, wrong of me, I think. There's a lot of great, great guys. You know, I haven't even mentioned Kimi, Kimi Raikkonen or Sebastian Vettel. So even in a name check, I'm going to miss some out. So I'd, I'd rather not <laughs> yeah. do that. No, I can't put you in a, a, a corner there, but you've answered like a true diplomat. Um, yeah. Indeed. I'm always quite interested to ask, what is the most memorable race that you've like sat on the pit wall for or something that just, you know, if there was one race that you had to like think back on? Well, wow. Um, again, there have been lots of events throughout my career which I've been fortunate enough to be a part of. I think one that stands out a little bit though was in 2009, I was working for Red Bull and they'd never won a race to that point in time. And as the race started, it was really bad weather conditions and we found ourselves at the front starting the race behind the safety car and everyone around us started pitting to take on new fuel and all of that and there was a lot of pressure to actually follow suit but we did an anti-intuitive strategy we we stayed out when everyone else pitted and the the link to this is the data analytics showed us that was the way forward because it allowed us to drive into the distance without getting the spray so we could go disproportionately quicker so we did that, the race un unfolded, and not only did we win the race, Red Bull's first in history, it was a one-two victory. So that was like pretty powerful stuff. But the fun didn't end there, and that's not where the memorable bit was, although one-two is a fantastic mm. result, and we've had a few of those in our careers, thankfully. But it was the fact that when we got off the pit wall and went down to the podium, all of the other teams in all of the other garages actually came out and clapped so all of the engineers and all of the mechanics gave us like a tunnel of clapping down because we were, until that point, we were the joke team, yet we had delivered and that was the beginning of the Red Bull dominance. Mm. So it was, it was very memorable from that front. Wow. There was one in Spa, actually, for um, McLaren. Um, we basically were chasing down Michael Schumacher with Mika Hakkinen and... Ron Dennis wanted to pit the uh, the McLaren car and of Mika Hakkinen and we wanted, we being Mark Slade and myself, wanted to hang him out a few laps longer because at Spa, each lap you stayed out, you'd be on fresher tyres and it'd be worth two and a half tenths a second a lap back then. So we we wanted, we if you like, Ron let us overrule him to um, pit Mika Hakkinen later uh, up to five laps newer tyres with Mika than Michael. And that meant it gave us a second a lap closure on Michael. And that actually represented and ended up being the most voted excellent overtake manoeuvre of all time. And it was where Mika Hakkinen went one side of a back marker, Ricardo Zonta, Michael went the other. The back marker was left in the middle as we overtook both cars <laughs> in, in a... It looked like synchronised overtaking, but it was just phenomenal skill set <laughs> by Mika. So that, that was a nice one because it had a great visual at the end. Okay. To use your own terminology, um, there may be um, a lot of geeks out there who are <laughs> listening to this, who may not be able to speak as well as you, um, who are trying to implement change in their business, who are very data-driven, um, and it must be quite difficult for them if you're looking at a business you really want to change or implement that change with. Um, 
did you ever get a sense of uh, imposter syndrome when you're working in Formula One, being uh, this kind of new entity in a team that didn't quite understand what you did? Um, and second part to that question, was there a moment where you sat there and went, yeah, this is why I do what I do? Ooh, that's a very good question, or set of questions, in fact. <laughs> I think I was driven at 21 or whatever by complete naivety and massive overconfidence. <laughs> and I think that lack of inhibition allowed me to say things and do things which I probably later in my career would have paused and thought, well, man, that was a bit inappropriate or, or a bit too uh, forceful, Neil. But I think that in my particular case uh, led me to say things and effect change because I didn't understand politically what the ramifications could be. Um, I think if you're in that situation or if you're in a data situation now, I think more global advice is if you do not try to communicate, if you do not say anything, nothing will change. Mm. So if you try to communicate, at least you're giving yourself, you're entering the game to actually try and make them aware. Um, in terms of improving communication, um, I can't speak for individuals on how yeah. they should do that, but it's definitely worth doing because that's the missing piece. We teach a lot of things through education. We, we, we treat, you know, the STEM science, all of that. We, we focus on things. But actually, the human interaction at the end of it is the absolute key. And I think it's well worth investing in everyone investing in themselves and being able to communicate effectively. Yeah, so those transferable skills that are actually going, yes, I can be my expert in my area. You're an expert in yours. But I'm going to use this skill now to help us be all on the same board here so we can really understand the impact of why we should go in this direction. Exactly. And, and, and understanding the terminology of the C-suite. Because I, I remember then I joined um, <laughs> Formula One in the beginning I was talking about batch loads and this, and that, and the other because of the algorithm that I'd come across. And, you know, the engineers were sat there looking at each other's going, batch loads? What you? Oh, he means fuel. Because, <laughs> you know, because I hadn't learned the terminology. So I, I think if you're lovingly a geek going into the C-suite, what, what are the words they are using? What do they mean? Because it is a they might use a softer language. Like if you go high enough in the C-suite, I, I hear the word AI an awful lot. And when you actually look at what they're using, it's just an algorithm. It's not mm. even anything deep or, or, or touching AI. And what would you say was that moment um, during your, your journey in Formula One where you sat there and went, yeah, I nailed this. This is exactly why I do what I do. It would be fairly early on, actually, when, when you call a race strategy um, and you make a proposal, it's a live event. So there I am, 20-something years old, sat there making a proposal for something to happen. When you actually say box this lap and that you'd like to box and then that whole process happened and you watch on TV 23 people do the pit stop the whole thing unfold in front of you and then you get to the end of the race and 400 million people get to find out if you're right <laughs> the same time that you do your hairs tingle on the back of mm. your neck and that you just it, it's a feeling which is incredible 
And I mean, that might sound like quite an extreme example to some people, but really that's what we're talking about here is how can you get to a point where you're getting data that you know is right, you're implementing that, you're improving a business, and at the same point as everyone else going, look, it worked. Yeah. And that, I think, in any context must be incredibly satisfying. And I suppose that's what is it, that's probably a very nice end mm. for us to naturally come to going, well, actually, that's the journey we want to go on. That's the journey we want businesses to take. So um, just personally for me, thank you, Neil. Yes, it's been fan- fantastic. Please come back. Yeah, please come <laughs> back. I'm much. sure we have lots of questions we want to ask you. But equally, if anyone is listening and they have any further questions for Neil or they want to find out more about uh, what we're talking about, they can visit the mhrglobal.com uh, website. They can check us out on social media. We have lots there. We will take any other questions and we'll see if we can forward them on. But thank you again for listening to this podcast. Thank you again, Neil, for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I've been Andy. And I've been Jenna. Tune in next time thank you very much